Good morning, church. It's very good to be here together with you in 2023. Wow. Sheila and I were out last night on a walk, and I looked at her and I said, Can you believe it's been a quarter of a century since we graduated high school? <laughs> it's kind of hard to think about it that way, to be honest with you, but here we are. Welcome to 2023, and we're so excited today to begin a new series through the book of Exodus. And as we work through the book of Exodus together, we're going to break it down into three movements. In movement one, we're going to trace the themes of redemption and deliverance, and we'll start that today. Then in movement two, we're going to focus in on God's formation of a newly freed people into a nation. And all of this will lead us up to the unfortunate fall. We're in the final movement, God's people create and worship their own idol, an act after which God would demonstrate his steadfast and loyal love as he graciously restores and renews his people. So redemption, reformation, and renewal in three movements through the second book of the Bible, Exodus. And by the nature of the size of this book, we'll have to take our study chunk by chunk, otherwise we would be in it for a quarter of a century. And uh, <laughs> we don't want to do that to you. And so on Sundays, we're going to endeavor to cover up to three, maybe even sometimes four chapters in a uh, big bite. And we're going to attempt something new with this series. We're going to try to supplement the series uh, and cover some of the portions of the book that we miss or gloss over on Sunday mornings by releasing a podcast on the first Monday of each month titled Sunday's Leftovers. And that podcast will dive deeper into the areas on Sunday that we kind of had to skip over uh, due to time, and we'll go a little bit deeper in those areas. We'll do that once a month, and that'll be released on the first Monday of each month that we're in the series. It's also exciting that our five Bible quizzing teams will be working through portions of the book of Exodus as well for their quiz season this year. We did not try that um, that was the Lord. So if you would like even more information on the book, you can attend Bible quizzing events or even quiz one of the team members. I'm certain that they would be happy to fill you in on what they're learning in all of their studies. So there's so many opportunities for us to explore, discover, and learn together as we walk through the sequel to Genesis, the history of God's people, the book of Exodus. Traditionally, we credit Moses with the authorship of Exodus, along with the four other books that make up the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The first five books of our English Bibles are known as the Torah. And at the conclusion of Genesis, as we wrap that first book of the Bible up, the readers who read it are left with quite a cliffhanger. The children of God's covenant promise are in Egypt. And not only are they in Egypt, but they're dying off very quickly. The last remaining patriarch, Joseph, dies at 110 years of age. His body is embalmed, and he's placed in a coffin, not in the land of promise, but rather in Egypt. Where is the land of promise? And what about the descendants? that were to be numerous as the stars? How are we to find a blessing in the desperation of famine that would lead to enslavement? 
and death. The page turns from Genesis 50 to Exodus 1, leaving its readers with many unresolved questions. And as we dig through the sands of Exodus, we're going to find through our journey treasures in the form of answers to these and many other questions pertaining to God and His character. Through it all, the glory and the majesty of our God is on full display as He is marvelously at work in many ways to remember, to keep, and to fulfill His covenant promises. And so today, if you have your Bibles, you want to take them now and turn to Exodus chapter 1. You may have them on a device. You want to turn to that chapter of Exodus now. We're going to begin today looking at chapters 1 and 2 in the book of Exodus. And the big idea that we are going to gather around and feast on today is that even when the situation seems desperate and all hope appears lost, God is still working. It is a message as significant and relevant to us today as it was to the enslaved Hebrew people many years ago. So Exodus chapter 1 and 2 today, and let's pray and ask God to guide our time as we study His Word together. Father, we give You thanks and praise for this time of corporate study where we gather around Your Word knowing that You are working even now. You're alive, Your Word is alive, it is active, and You are using it to change us and transform us as the Spirit works to convict, to give enlightenment, and to help us understand how we can be sought and light in the places that you've planted us in this world. Lord, as we walk through this book of Exodus, there are many questions that we have, and we look forward to what you'll teach us in this study together. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its power and effectiveness in our lives, and we give you the glory as we enter into it now. In Jesus' name, amen. Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all of his brothers and all of that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. The waves of Genesis, we will find, will crash over the book of Exodus. There are echoes of bells from Genesis that are ringing throughout the Exodus narrative. And in verse 7, we find one of those first chimes. This idea of God's people being fruitful and multiplying. Biblical scholars generally agree that there was roughly 360 years between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. And Moses intends for his readers to see that at the end of Genesis, there are only about 70 descendants of the promise left. And as we shared before, this is a bleak and critical time in the nation's history. However, 
We find in verse 7 that during their captivity, the people continued to reproduce and to multiply to the point where it had been determined that those 70 descendants could have easily grown to roughly 2 million in the 430 years between the end of Genesis and the time of their exodus in Egypt. 70 to roughly 2 million. That's incredible. It is a sign to us that the Hebrew people had not forgotten the promises of God. Their reproduction becomes a symbol of their faithfulness while they were in captivity. They had not despaired to the point of hopelessness. But, on the other side of this coin, we find that the sheer growth of the Hebrew people struck fear into the heart and mind of the Pharaoh, the king who was on the throne in Egypt in that day. As it turns out, a new king had ascended to the royal throne. And this king did not know Joseph or all of the things that took place that were a part of his narrative. The growth of the Hebrew population was outpacing that of the more comfortable and complacent Egyptian people, causing great fear and concern to the Pharaoh who was in power. And as the story continues to unfold in chapters 1 and 2, the Pharaoh concocts a threefold plan to limit the growth of the Hebrew population. First, he increases the hardship of the Hebrew enslavement. Now this is a form of physical oppression to make people work, to toil or to labor harder under the supervision of ruthless taskmasters. Under this measure, the people were tasked to build cities, storehouses for the Egyptian people and their gods. In the mind of the Pharaoh, and it seems logical, longer and harder labor meant less time for the activity that was leading to the explosive growth of the Hebrew population. Makes sense, right? But, as we will find throughout this narrative, the Hebrew people are a persistent group of people. But then there was a second part of the Pharaoh's plan. The second part was to order the Hebrew midwives to kill off all the males born to Hebrew women at their birth. And when the Hebrew midwives courageously oppose and undermine and subvert the Pharaoh's command, his plan is stunted yet again. And the Hebrew population continues its supernatural and exponential growth. It's interesting, more tones of Genesis. In Genesis's opening chapters, we find a woman tempted by a serpent, giving in to temptation she takes, she consumes, and she passes it on to Adam, who would do the same. Life was destroyed as sin and death entered the world. But Exodus, friends, Exodus is a story about redemption. This time, when tempted by a new and crafty serpent whose name was Pharaoh, it is the women who rise to the occasion, demonstrating a faithful obedience that can be an example to us all. Pharaoh here is tempting the women just as the serpent had tempted in the garden. Hebrew midwives are being encouraged to take 
to consume, to destroy the life of males born to Hebrew women. But this time, it is the women who stand and deliver. Fearing God above the serpent Pharaoh, they are obedient, they're fearless, they're brave, they're resilient. They are presented in the narrative as astounding. And for their obedience, the text tells us in verse 21 that God blesses them by making households for them. And inconspicuously nestled within one of those households was a family through whom God would bring forth his child of deliverance. And so when Pharaoh's plan to destroy the life of the firstborn male is disrupted a second time, his new command now extends to all the people. Look at verse 22 of chapter 1. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, no longer just the Hebrew midwives, all sons that are born you, you must throw, in, you must throw into the river, but all daughters you may let live. And with this command, the full scope and the full measure of Pharaoh's authority is turned against all the male children who were born to Hebrew women. This is a desperate situation, friends. Imagine this. The God who had made covenant with Abraham, who had promised him all of these marvelous things, that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars and that his offspring would be blessed. That same God is now working with his people who are in captivity. The seed of blessing seems deeply threatened. In and through all this adversity, what we're going to find is a flicker of light in the darkness. God is still working And he would specifically work through one couple from the tribe of Levi. Not heroes. They're not heroes. In fact, their names aren't even given in the text. These are faithful people clinging to the promises of God in a cold and violent world. Maybe people much like you and me. Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 to six. A man from the household of Levi married a woman who was a descendant of Levi. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a healthy child, she hid him for three months. But when she was no longer able to hide him, she took a papyrus basket for him and sealed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and set it among the reeds along the edge of the Nile. His sister stationed herself at a distance to find out what would happen to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself in the Nile while her attendants were walking alongside the river, and she saw the basket among the reeds. She sent one of her attendants, took it, opened it, and saw the child, a boy, crying. And she felt compassion for him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. It's passages of Scripture such as these where we find ourselves awestruck by the unfathomable, unimaginable ways of God. I mean, think of what is happening here. 
This is really outstanding. We have a Pharaoh who is wholly committed to the elimination of Hebrew male infants. And God chooses Pharaoh's daughter, filling her heart with compassion. And through her compassion, an infant deliverer finds deliverance himself. Now, is there ever another time when we can remember a deliverer moved with compassion coming down to the waters to draw out a people unto himself? Perhaps John 1 comes to mind. No author could possibly write a more compelling script. And Pharaoh, all along the way, thinks as one who considers himself a God that he is Lord over this entire situation. Through his mouth, Pharaoh plots destruction. But unbeknownst to him, he has produced in his very loins the very child in his daughter whom God would use to preserve redemption. Remarkable. It is a clue to us in this narrative That God can work in and through anyone, Hebrew, Egyptian, or otherwise, to accomplish His purposes. And again, in the deliverance of this infant, drawn out of the waters, the bells of Genesis are tolling. Three months after the birth of this child, to save him from the chaos of the waters... His mother places him in an ark. An ark, you say? It's a basket! We can't see this in our English translations. But the word that is used, the Hebrew word used for basket in verse 3, is the same exact Hebrew word that's used for the ark in Genesis. A reminder... That God can save through the mighty and the extravagant, but He's also able to save through the weak and the vulnerable. One ark in Genesis, massive, mighty, made to be filled with much of creation. Another in Exodus, tiny, yet sturdy, with just enough room for one infant deliverer. Now, verses 5 and 6 in chapter 22, they become pregnant with verbs because so much vital to the plot of Exodus is unfolding before our very eyes. The narrative has not yet revealed to us the name of this child. And by God's design, Miriam, the sister of the child, is watching this whole event take place along the Nile. The plan in her mind will prove to be far more successful than the plans of Pharaoh in chapter 1. How could it be that this child, delivered from the waters by a princess, might be returned to his enslaved mother to be nursed? Jochebed, Moses' mother, would experience both the joy and the intimacy of knowing, holding, and feeding her own 
son. One day, though, she would also know the pain and the agony of having to give him away. Placing his life back in the hands of her Egyptian oppressors. In verse 10 of chapter 2, a mother's most agonizing pain becomes realized. Look at verse 10. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, Because I drew him from the water. Can you sense the pain there? From a distance, Jochebed and the family of Moses would have to watch as he's raised by another woman, taking on Egyptian customs and traditions, free from the slavery and the bondage of his own people, yet as we'll find next week, a slave in his own mind. Scholars believe that Moses was at an incredibly pivotal age when he was taken from his mother, most likely between the ages of four to six. And the pain that is experienced by one who loses their first family is a pain that few on this earth are able to relate to, understand, or identify with. It is a pain that both wounds and it inhabits itself in the very depths of a person's soul. It's one for which there is no easy fix or solution It's one I suspect that no one in Moses' life ever fully understood or empathized with, except for God. Questions perhaps that Moses wrestled with, and he does. We're going to see this as the narrative unfolds for his entire life. Where do I belong? Who am I, really? And friends, these same questions today sometimes invade and pervade our own hearts and our own minds from time to time. Where do I belong? Who am I, really? Hopeful answers come to mind for those of us who are known by Jesus and know Jesus as our Lord. We belong to God through Jesus, adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God. And for those who know Jesus and are known by Him, that's an incredibly hopeful truth and reality, one that defines our very identity and purpose in this life. But at this point, the pace of our narrative is picking up rapidly. It is likely that Moses is around the age of 40 as we enter verse 11 of chapter 2. So we have lost an entire 30 years or so of Moses' life between verse 10 and verse 11. The trauma of Moses' early life has now grown with him into his 40s and is manifesting itself in confusion, in anger, in violence, and fear. Moses could have easily just accepted his new Egyptian life and settled into a life of comfort, the son of a princess, accepting the privilege that would have come with it. But he grew tired of watching those he knew to be his own people suffer. And in his anger, Moses begins 
to fight back. His motivation to help his fellow countrymen was admirable, yes, but his methods are lamentable. Look at verses 11 through 14 of of chapter 2. In those days, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and observed their hard labor, and he saw an Egyptian man attacking a Hebrew man, one of his own people. He looked this way and that and saw that no one was there. And then he attacked the Egyptian and concealed the body in the sand. When he went out the next day, there were two Hebrew men fighting. So he said to the one who was in the wrong, Why are you attacking your fellow Hebrew? The man replied, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you planning to kill me like you killed that Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid, thinking, Surely what I had done has become known. And again, any time that you're reading the Scripture and you find a passage that's just filled with verbs, they're helping us grab and feel and sense the moment that we're in. Moses grows up in terms of his age, still a bit immature, much immature. He goes out to his people. He observes. What he sees bothers him. And no one was doing anything about it. So Moses takes matters into his own hands. He attacks, he kills, he conceals. Maybe that would solve the problem. How many times in your own life, how many times in my own life, have I thought taking matters into my own hands would help me solve a problem? Only to create another, and another, and another. It's like I shared a few weeks ago when I tried to fix something in my house. I'm better off not doing it. Every time it seems like I take matters into my own hands, it never evolves the way I desire. The next day, Moses goes out, same story, different people. People being treated poorly. But this time, it's brother to brother. So this time around, instead of violence, Moses tries reason. In his attempt to reason, he receives a rather prophetic rebuke, isn't it? Who made you ruler and judge over us? Prophecy in the form of two questions. Are you going to kill us like you killed that Egyptian? Moses' cover is blown. And isn't it interesting that it'll be later in the narrative when Moses will hear very similar words from his own people. But that time, they will be wandering together in an altogether different environment. Unfortunately for Moses, this event would not be the last time when he would trust in his own ability to solve problem and find himself in deep trouble. What Moses did with his anger, how he handled it, or better yet, how he let it handle him, 
would be a major part of what kept him from ever crossing into the promised land. And so now, fearing for his life, Moses chooses to flee. He's on the run. And the land of Midian, it was far away from Egypt. It was lying east of the Sinai Peninsula. The Midianites, guess what? Boom, boom, boom. Do you hear the bells? Genesis. The Midianites, descendants of Abraham through his wife, Keturah. So the child whose life was preserved in an ark as an adult, is now fleeing to the land and people who descended from Abraham. Look at verse 15 of chapter 2. So Moses fled from Pharaoh, and he settled in the land of Midian, and he settled by a certain well. Come on! Right? Isn't the Bible wonderful? I love it. This is... What we have in our hands is such a magnificent gift. It's living, ancient, meditative literature that's meant to captivate its readers and learners for our entire lives. It's the book that never stops giving. He comes to a well. Come on. In the land of Abraham's descendants, Moses comes to a well. For real. Isaac and Rebekah, where did they meet? At a well. Jacob and Rachel, also at a well. If we're observant, who do we think Moses might meet at this well? And here, as we look back the corridors to Genesis, we're at a crossroads where we can also look forward to a time that's even today where the bride, who is the church, meets her deliverer, whose name is Jesus, the unending well of living water. But more on that another day. We must return to Midian, where in the shadow of the well, we find yet another act of deliverance. Look at verse 16. Now, a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and began to draw water and fill troughs to water their father's flocks. When some shepherds came and drove them away, Moses came up and defended them and then watered their flock. Quite the harrowing account. And the young women, as it turns out in the text, they can't wait to go home and tell their father about this Egyptian deliverer. And Jethro, whose name is also Reuel in the text, he responds to his daughters, Where is he? Why in the world did you let him go? They must not have gotten many Egyptian deliverers visiting those parts of Midian in those days. And as the conversation around the dinner table descends into one with a more 21st century tone, Jethro asks his daughters to call Moses. I wonder what that looked like back then. What did it look like 
to call Moses. There were some phones. <laughs> there wasn't text messaging. I don't know how they did it. I mean, maybe they went outside and just started yelling his name or went on a hunt. I'm not sure. Verses 21 and 22. Single, uh, I just got to warn single young men before we read these verses. Let this be a testimony to you all that dinner can quickly lead to marriage. which can also quickly lead to the birth of a child. All of this happens right here. So be careful, young men, who you dine with. Verse 21. Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave his daughter, Zipporah, to Moses in marriage. And when she bore a son, Moses named him Gershom, for he said... I have become a resident foreigner in a foreign land. That's what the name Gershom means. And the names in Exodus 1 and 2 are one of the topics that we will cover uh, in our February edition of Sunday's Leftovers. Here's Moses, a foreigner giving birth to a son whom he names alien in a foreign land. And so life goes, as it often does. Time passes. One pharaoh dies, another rises to take his place, and the plight of the Hebrews grows even more desperate. Let's pick up in verse 23 as we look at the two kinds of kings that are presented in chapters 1 and 2. They cried out, and their desperate cry because of their slave labor went up to God. And let's say our memory verse together, verses 24 and 25. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Exodus 2, 24, 25. And you see, we are presented in this text with two very different types of kings. The first type of king, Pharaoh, chapter 1, he forgets the promises. And he forgets all the things that Joseph had done and all the things involving the Hebrew people. The text tells us he doesn't even know Joseph. And when he sees the sheer number of people, he's threatened and fearful. And to maintain power and control over his empire, he crushes the Hebrew people under the weight of torment and slavery. Hearing their cries, he only brings increased persecution and subjugation. But here in verses 23 to 25, we are presented with the image of an altogether different kind of king. God, the king of creation, who has never abandoned his people. He is the God of Genesis's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he remains. And this king hears the groanings of his people. He remembers his promises. He sees their pain, the pain of a mother who had to give her child to another woman to be raised, the pain of a people who were enslaved and tortured under taskmasters who oppressed them 
He saw, he felt, he knew, he understood. He is Emmanuel then, he is Emmanuel today, the God who is with. And he does something. He acts. He's working. And I love that in this text, in these first two chapters, what we have seen is that he's willing to work, yes, through the faithfulness of the Hebrew people that were in bondage, but yes, also through the Egyptians. And yes, also through Moses. And yes, also through Midianites. Strangers to the first two chapters. Beautiful. And so, the time is now for the calling of a deliverer. And that is a topic for next week as we continue to unpack God's redemption in the book of Exodus. I am encouraged that we get to celebrate and participate as a body of Christ together in communion on this Sunday. A Sunday where we begin to celebrate the redemption of God's people. We also can remember and can proclaim together as a community our own redemption. And so at this time I'm going to ask our elders to go to the back, prepare to come forward to serve communion. And as they do, I'd like us to take a time right now to prepare our hearts, prepare our minds to receive communion. I remind you that if you're a visitor here to Calvary Monument Bible Church, if this is your first Sunday with us, if you know the Lord and Savior, we invite you, let's celebrate together. Let's rejoice in these truths together as a body. Participate with us. If you are here with us today, whether you're a visitor or you've been with us for a long time and you do not yet know the Lord, feel no obligation to participate with us today. You can let the uh, uh, bread and the cup pass right by uh, without feeling a need. This is a time for us to remember, to proclaim, to celebrate the delivery and the redemption that we've all experienced through the sacrifice of the body and blood of Jesus. So let's pray as our elders come. Father, we thank you again for the marvelous testimony of your sovereignty in your word. It is apparent and abundantly clear that you were in control over this entire situation in Egypt. Lord, you knew Pharaoh's heart. You knew the hearts of the Hebrew people. You knew the heart of Pharaoh's daughter, of Moses' parents. You were with your people. You are still with us today. You love us. And we are so thankful for that love, that love that we didn't do anything to earn, that love that before Christ we did not deserve, but that love that you so wonderfully lavish upon us as your sons and your daughters. You are such a good father to us.